Good morning again, church. For a while now, a couple of weeks, a few weeks, we have been touching on the kingdom of God. I told you at the beginning, Matthew is the only one who uses the term kingdom of heaven in the New Testament. And he uses it multiple times. He uses it, depending on who's counting, about 30, 31, 32 times. He does it comparatively. He talks about Jesus preaching about the kingdom of heaven. But he uses that term over and over and over again. Just to remind you, we started out at the beginning talking about what was going on at the time when he wrote the letter. Remember that the kingdom of Israel was being oppressed, was under the thumb of the Romans. And the zealots were beginning to stir up trouble in Israel. They were beginning to, to gather some momentum for a big rebellion, for a big pushback against the Romans. They were going to get the Romans out of Israel. They were going to do what they'd done to the Greeks. They were going to toss those Romans out and solidify their authority and their power. And the zealots had begun to, to stir up the population. And Matthew writes to the Christian church. And he writes to the church about the kingdom of heaven. And over and over again, he keeps coming back at them with the kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And it's not what you expect. It's not what you were planning. It's not the sort of thing that you imagined it to be. As we talk about it this morning, we're going to touch on two parables that Jesus uses to speak about the smallness, how little the group is that changes the world. How small an element can have a huge impact. Um, are you familiar with this term, the El Camino Real? Raise your hand if you've heard of the El Camino Real. Okay. The El Camino Real is the King's Highway, the King's Road. In California, it's a very specific thing. In our state, it starts in San Diego, and it works its way up to Sonoma. It's a road specific to the, to the Spanish occupation of California. When the Spanish owned California, the, the missionaries in particular, but not only the missionaries, also the soldiers, followed a path north from San Diego. That path eventually became marked. It was a path that, that went between various of the missions, various pueblos, and various uh, outposts for the military. And it went along a certain path that became known as the El Camino Real. At first, when they tried to travel through California, they tried to travel along our coast. Now think about it. If you had to travel along California's coast, how does driving down one go for you? Okay, that's how it went for them, too. It was long, slow, slogging process over lots of little streams and over cliffs, and they struggled to make their way north. But as they kept persisting, kept working at going further north into California, because everybody knows Northern California is the best part of California, as they kept trying to get to the best part of California... They kept finding better routes, and they moved it in a little bit inland, and so the road that eventually became the El Camino Real is what roughly is Highway 101 today. So if you were to get on Highway 101 and drive north and south, that's roughly what the El Camino Real was. It was marked by a very distinct thing. 
When I was in third grade, fourth grade, somewhere in there, we had one of those California history classes. Now, most of the kids when we started history class in my school would just kind of go, oh, man. When they started history class in my school, for me, I would move to the front edge of my seat. I would start paying closer attention because history to me is just a bunch of stories strung together by dates. And so I just got to, we're going to hear a story. They're going to tell us a story. We're going to hear about someone or something or some event. And so when I got to, got to history class, I started paying extra attention. I was the history nerd in my class, okay? I'm still kind of that way. Just ask my wife. She tries to get me out of a museum. What I remember from one of those classes, I'm thinking it was third grade Mrs. Sauter used to throw chalk at us. I think it was her class. She said, as they began to try to mark this path between each one of the Pueblos, each one of the missions, they began to spread mustard seeds. And as they began to spread this mustard seed along the path, it became this yellow road. It became a path that they could stay on, they could recognize. Because it was 30 miles between Pueblos. That was a long ride. 30 miles between missions. It was a long ride to get from one to the other. They would try to do it in one day. You couldn't walk it in one day unless you were really fast. But on a horse, you could make it in one day with a good sturdy ride. But as they began to try to make sure people found the next mission or found the next Pueblo, they began to sprinkle mustard seeds along the path. Mustard is not a native plant to California. It's invasive. So that when you drive out through the Napa Valley and it's filled with all that beautiful mustard, you, you should look out there and scorn and say, those things shouldn't be there. They don't belong here. They're not Californians. <laughs> like none of the rest of us. Yeah, you may have been born here, but there, no, there are no native Californians. Even the native Californians came from somewhere else. There was nobody here to begin with. The point, though, is that mustard has become so prevalent in California that you see it everywhere, right? That little seed that they spread along the road has slowly engulfed the entire state. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. That is an actual hill in California. Some guy decided, I know what I'll do. I'll sprinkle these little yellow seeds or these little black seeds along here. That's his black mustard. We'll sprinkle these little black seeds along the path. You can carry tons of them. They're just little seeds. And when they sprout next spring, I'll be able to find my way. And those little seeds began to spread themselves. And they moved all across the state. And there are places in California where it's just mustard. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. Now, understand, it is not the least of all the seeds in the whole wide world. And people get themselves all choked up on this. Okay, Jesus is not making a prophetic statement. Okay, he's not making a biological determination. He is not saying it is the smallest seed and no other seed shall exceed this seed in its smallness. Okay. This is, not a, this is not spoken at the Creator's moment of, of, of initiating earth's beginnings, okay? It is the smallest seed that Israel would normally spread in a garden, okay? It's among the smallest seeds that Israel would use to plant in their gardens, right? 
the people of Israel knew what he was talking about because they recognized this was one of those little tiny seeds they sprinkled in the garden. Okay, I know my arugula seeds fight with, the, with those mustard seeds for who's smaller. And I think the arugula wins. But they weren't planting arugula in their gardens. Okay? Mustard was one of the smallest seeds they planted. And he said, when you plant mustard in your garden, it's like planting rosemary in your garden. Eventually, it takes over the garden. That mustard seed is going to start small and it's going to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not going to be like your little basil plant. It's, going to, it's not going to stay nice and small and be easy to pick from. It's going to grow tall. Do you know mustard can get 10 to 12 feet tall? It's going to grow tall and it's going to get big and it's actually going to get sturdy enough that some of the little birds are going to be able to come and fly in and rest in it and take their, take their leisure in your little mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. Comparatively. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can nest in its branches. You plant these little mustard seeds. You all know about it. You've seen this happen in your own garden. You go out in your backyard and you plant this little seed, this little mustard seed, and it grows and it grows. We have this weird looking plant growing in our backyard. We're not sure where it came from. It's, it's kind of, it's very leafy. Lots of, green, lots of greenery growing on it. And when it first sprouted, it grew up and it was just a foot or so tall. And we thought, okay, uh, you know, there's probably a flower behind this somewhere. There's going to be a flower. Something's going to happen. This, is, this, this will be a flower. And then it kept growing three feet, four feet. It's about four, four and a half feet tall. And the thing just barely started flowering with these little tiny flowers no bigger than my thumb. It to me seems like kind of a waste of, a waste of plant for that little flower. And then these little flowers don't even last. They pop up. They show up. They're yellow for a day or two, and then they're gone. To me, it's a weed. Not everybody in my household agrees with me. <laughs> you plant this little seed in your garden. You guys all know about it. You plant your, your row of turnips and you plant your row of this and you plant your row of that. And then you sprinkle that little seed in the corner and it grows up and it becomes this big bush. And the birds come visit your garden because you have this mustard seed growing. You know, guys, the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's not very big. Compared to everything else you're looking at, It's not all that big. Remember the audience for this story. Jesus is about to send 12 guys out against the Romans. Are you signing up for that? You and me and 10 of our buddies, we're going to go out and we're going to go out into the Roman Empire. We're going to transform the whole thing. We're going to face death. We're going to face destruction. We're going to face turmoil. We're going to eventually face the lions and crucifixion. Just the 12 of us, the dirty dozen, or the clean dozen. <laughs> Jesus is speaking to a group of guys who aren't sure they even want to follow him. They know what the world around them looks like, and Jesus is beginning to push them out of their comfortable little nest and beginning to say, hey guys, you need to think about flying. The disciples, when he starts telling these parables, come to him and say, "Uh, why do you speak to them, to the people in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So listen, guys, there is a special message I've been trying to give to you. And a part of this process is for you to learn and you to grow and you want you to understand. Later, he'll say that a scribe of scripture brings good things out of his understanding 
for, ver- for the various people in various times. He's telling the disciples, I'm training you, I'm teaching you, I'm helping you to understand some things that people generally do not understand. Who did Israel think was the kingdom of heaven? All of them. The whole nation. All of Abraham's children were the king of he- kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, guys, it's smaller than that. You're going to go up and face all of Israel. You're going to transform their religion. You're going, to, you're going to tell them that the way they've been going about everything they've been going about is wrong. And now they're going to have to follow after Jesus. It's okay. I know there's just a dozen of you guys. I know at the most there are 70 of you. You throw in the dozen of you, there's 82. Okay, it's not that big. But remember Gideon's army? It wasn't that big. Remember little David and big Goliath? It wasn't that big. He was, he's just a little guy with a couple of rocks. The kingdom of heaven's like that, you guys. It's, 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 it's small and it's insignificant when the world looks at it. But it's powerful and transforming. And amazing things happen when that little seed hits the ground and begins to germinate and begins to sprout. Do you know that oak tree outside the, the church over there? It's like a 200-year-old oak tree. Do you realize it started from a seed the size of my finger right there? If, if you don't believe me, go, go wander around there in the fall and you'll see a whole bunch of its little seeds. Giant oak tree, that majestic tree that stands there, started as a seed about the, big, about the size of my little finger right there. Sprouted one day, started at it, and just stayed at it, and stayed at it, and stayed at it. From those 12 guys came a church that currently numbers across the world about a billion people. And we look at it and we say, a billion people? Well, there's, there's like 8 billion people in the world. that It's still pretty insignificant, but... Think about that little seed that got planted in the garden and how it's grown and what it's done and the impact it's made around the world. <laughs> Do you realize uh, until very recently, all of the Western world set its, set its calendar A.D. and B.C. before the coming of Christ, after the coming of Christ? The whole world. It's only been in recent years when we started using B.C.E. Before the common era. Before what everybody accepts as the time when we should keep track of time. Okay. If that's what you want to do. But we know. We're counting from the day that little seed got dropped in the ground. And began to sprout. And began to become something so much more. At the time the disciples were asked to go forward into that first century world. How big was the kingdom of God? How big was the rest of the world? Look at what the Romans are doing. They occupy Israel. The Roman religion has covered the known world. It's covered the biggest empire in the history of the known world. From, from England to North Africa to the Indus Valley in India. Massive impact of the Romans and the Roman religion. And where, where does Israel have an impact? Oh yeah, that one little road that runs up and down the Mediterranean between Egypt and the rest of the place. Does it look like they've been succeeding? Or like Rome has been succeeding? If you were just to go, if you were just to look at that moment and say, who's winning? We would always say, it's, it's the Romans. Look, it's clear. The Roman religion is, is covering the world. God's people live in fear. Death and disease are often unchecked. Pain is normal. Sickness is deadly. Who is winning? The devil or God? around the world and you say man God has God has worked for three and a half years and he's recruited 12 guys man he, he needs to get himself a PR person this isn't going very well 
And if you look at these 12 guys, one of them is really shaky, and the rest of them are a little sketchy. And the guy he's picked for a leader, I wouldn't let him babysit my kids. <laughs> Who's winning? Jesus said, the kingdom of God's like a little mustard seed. You plant it out in the garden, the thing sprouts. Before you know it, it's, it's knee high, and then it's hip high, and then it's, it's head high, and the birds are coming and sitting in this, in this little tree. And there you are. That's you guys. In the 21st century, who's winning? Racial conflicts here and around the world. Religious wars. Anybody heard of ISIS? Economic uncertainty, fear, death, pain, sickness. Who's winning? See, it's very easy for the church to become discouraged because... It's just the church. It's just us few. It's just our little group. And we look out at the world and we watch the news and we hear people talk about what's going on in the rest of the world. And the culture seems to be overwhelming the church. It seems to be washing, the way, washing away the church. There are places where the church once thrived where now there are just antiques, just buildings that used to be places where people gathered. And now the church isn't there. There's just a building that used to house the church. And now what, what was once a majestic cathedral with thousands of people coming every week is just a tourist event. And it's interesting what happens in these churches. I don't know if you've ever toured any of these huge churches, gone to Notre Dame Cathedral or Westminster Abbey. I don't know if you've ever gone to one. But if you've ever noticed, if you've ever been there, that the tourists get a little irritated when they hold a church service in the church? <laughs> ever notice that? You know, they'll, they'll be standing at the back and they'll be saying, okay, folks, you, I, oh, I, don't come in right now. We have a service going on. After the service is over, you can come in. And the tourists line up like, can they just be done already? I want to see the inside of the church. They're holding a worship service. This is Notre Dame Cathedral. What are they doing that for? Well, it's actually a church. There's only 15 people in there. Why do they hold? There's 200 of us out here who want to see it. Who's winning? Does it ever feel? Does it ever feel like we're not getting anywhere? Does it ever feel like we maybe just ought to fold up our tents, quit spending our money, stay at home, and watch the sky for Jesus to come? Some days I think being church feels a little futile in the face of everything else. Jesus said, it's, it's a little mustard seed, and you throw it in the corner of your garden. You don't want it in the middle because it'll take over the place. You put it in the corner of your garden, and then it sprouts, and before you know it, it's knee high, and then it's hip high, and then it's shoulder and head high, and then the birds are resting in it, and it's become this beautiful thing. He said, yeah, it, it looks kind of insignificant, but it's not. kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, comparatively. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's the church. And then there is the local church. Pastor Greg said it last week. We've said it to you many times. That the local church is the hope of the world. It's not the corporate church. It's not the conference office. I worked there a lot. 
It's not the conference office. You know people do not walk into the conference office to find the church. Did you know that? You go down, you, you, you go down uh, and you find 401 Taylor Boulevard and you turn into the parking lot of this building that looks kind of like a non-distinct office building and you kind of walk inside and the lobby doesn't have anybody to greet you. There's nobody passing out bulletins. There's nobody directing you into worship. There's not even a, a worship chapel there's kind of a multi-purpose room that gets used for a chapel, and then we have birthday parties and stuff like that in there. It's just an office. The, it's not the corporate church that is the hope of the world. It's the local church that is the hope of the world. You know, we have these massive church organizations, massive church organizations, not just in our church, but across the world. It takes a lot of organization to run a bunch of local churches. And there are big organizations all over the world, some of them huge But they're not the hope of the world. A conference president, a general conference president, a division president, a a union president, some, some guy in some office somewhere is not the hope of the world. It's the local church that's the hope of the world. Do you know that the, the conference presidents, the union presidents, the general conference presidents, the leaders in all churches all the, in all the world go to a local church to be ministered to and to be engaged in ministry. Every one of them. Because it's the local church. That's the hope of the world. The local church. When World Vision started looking for a new, a new process, a better way to access the people of the world who needed their services, the children who needed redemption, who needed food, who needed health care, who needed really to be touched. When World Vision started looking for a model to follow after, to try to really make that effective, to really get into people's lives, you know where they went? They didn't go to denominational headquarters. They went to local churches. And they went to partner with local churches in these communities where children needed them. And they would sit down with the local church and its leaders and the pastor and they would say, Hey, we want to minister to the kids in your village. We want to minister to the kids in your town. We will come and trust you with the care of these kids. We'll provide the funding. We'll provide the training. We'll provide all the help you need. But we'll need to do it through a person who actually sees them, who actually lives with them, who actually works with them. A person who knows their name. That's the local church. When Rick Warren wanted to start what he called the Peace Project, he wanted to really try to make an impact in Africa and in other places around the world where the gospel didn't seem to be going forward very fast in the way he hoped. The word was being preached, but the lives were not being touched. People weren't being healed. There wasn't health. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't well-being. There wasn't a, a place to be given them to, to, to getting medicine into the hands of people. He knew that governments were sending millions and billions of dollars into Africa, and none of it was getting to the people. How do you get around the government? Well, it's easy. You go to the local church. And he started calling on local pastors and calling on local people and saying, hey, we need to get the the medical care. We need to get the education. We need to get the food into the hands of the people and bypass the government. Will you partner with us? And they began to send the money and send the, send the, uh, the, the supplies into the local church. And it was local churches, local pastors, local leaders touching the lives of people that began to really make an effect in the folks' lives. It's the local church that's the hope of the world. Governments are corrupt. Governments are a mess. Leadership in the world is terrible. In most cases, people rise in the leadership by kicking or killing the person below them. But in the local church, that, that little seed that you toss over in the corner of your garden, before you know it, it's knee high, and then it's hip high, and then it's shoulder high, and then it's over your head, and the birds are landing in it. That local church... 
But out in some jungle in Africa may only be 10, 15, 20 people, but it knows the village, it knows the other people, it knows the greatest need. And when you come to them and you help them supply the need, the local church is the hope of the world. Most microloans from Christian organizations go through local churches. There's a little village out at the end of the road in Ghana, and I'm telling you, it's the end of the road. A couple of years ago, Brendan, I had the pleasure of going out to this church, and you're driving out, you drive along this big road, and then you turn on a smaller road, and you're on a smaller road, and you're on a smaller road, and when that road stops, you get out of the car, and that's the village. I went into the village, we shared the story with you, and we talked to the folks there, we, we visited with the people who were meeting, the church was under a tree. Church had been in that town for years, a couple of decades actually. There were probably 40, 50 people from that village who were members of the church. Went in and talked to the talked to the uh, the leadership in that local in that local village. Talked to the chief and the subset of chiefs. There were a bunch of them. And I think you may remember the story. In the middle of this conversation, talking about what was going on, one of those chiefs said, hey, why don't you have a church building? He said, the Catholics come, they built a church building. The Baptists came, they built a church building. You guys have been here longer than anybody. Why don't you have a church building? And the head chief, who speaks through somebody else, we found out it wasn't him who was actually speaking, said, if you build a church, I'd go to that church. So this congregation, about a year ago, Sponsored a church. They don't meet under a tree anymore. They have a little building. It's, it's not terribly impressive in terms of Western buildings. But it has a roof. And it's sturdy. It's not going to blow away when the rains come. They can gather under it. Be out of the weather. They can meet no matter what's going on outside. Because the local church... Blessed a local church and began to make an impact in the world. Take a little seed, you put it in the corner of your garden before you know it. It's knee high, it's waist high, it's shoulder high, and the birds are landing in it. And it's become a place of rest. It's become a place of refuge. It becomes a place of impact. The local church is the hope of the world. There's a church that sits in the middle of Mexico that some of you built. Block building, metal roof, a a bathroom outside, which they hadn't planned on. Wire thrown over the wire that's going by to get electricity into the building. And a congregation, when we left, packed the place to the walls. Ojo Caliente has a church because a local church... Serving and helping a local church makes an impact on a community and it becomes the hope of the world. There are about four or five churches in the Dominican Republic which people in this church helped build. There's a clinic in Guatemala that David Lopez's father has been basically carving out of the jungle that people in this church helped build. When racial problems finally came to a head in North America and something had to be done about it, 
When, they, when there needed to be an end to the Jim Crow laws and the racism that had set in for generations in the South, did God get a government solution? Or was it the local church? We, we talk about Martin Luther King like he was a politician. He wasn't. He was a preacher. And once again, the local church proved to be the hope of the world. It's just a little seed you throw it in the corner of your garden before you know it. It's knee high. And it's waist high and it's shoulder high. And the birds begin to land in it and they begin to rest. And it becomes a little bit of a shady spot in the corner of the garden. You didn't expect it. It was just a little tiny seed. And the local church has become the hope of the world. Another parable, he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. There's a little bit of discussion about three measures of flour, but call it about eight gallons. You can't see what I can see, but there are bubbles beginning to form on the top of my children's story. And given a little time, maybe you, if you were where I am, you could see that there are bubbles around the edge. Because the leavening agents in the flour have begun to work. And they begin to make room. They begin to push a little air in, into the otherwise flat medium that was that dough. And they've begun to lift it and push it and spread out. And Jesus said, it's like a little bit of leavening that you throw into a bunch of flour. And, you know, you could feed a hundred people with that much flour. And you throw in that leavening, it begins to lift and spread and expand. You know, they call it doubling. That you put the leavening in there and it doubles the capacity of that food. It doubles the size. And before you know it, you're slicing it and your jelly and your your peanut butter is going on it. And you've gone from a piece of bread with a bunch of little holes in it to a meal. The local church no matter what it may look like, is still the hope of the world. The kingdom of heaven is like a little leaven that if you, if you leave it in the bowl too long, will find its way out. Who wins this battle? A pine nut, which is the smallest of all nuts, figuratively, falls into a small crack in a rock and a tree sprouts. Who wins? The rock? You know, it may not be this tree. It may be the next generation or the generation after that. But the trees win this battle. They just keep growing. They just keep working at it. The kingdom of heaven is like a pine nut. It's the smallest of all nuts, and it falls into the crack in a rock, and before you know it, it begins to sprout, and then it's, a, it's knee high, and it's waist high, and it's shoulder high, and the rock is broken. The victory is not to the mighty. The victory does not go to the warlords of the world. The victory comes at the hand of 
of the church because of the power of Christ. It's just a little seed. You throw it in the corner of your garden and before you know it, it's knee high and then it's waist high and then it's shoulder high and then it's above your head and the sparrows and the birds are landing in it and they're taking their rest for the day. The kingdom of heaven may not look like it's winning. It may look like the culture is winning. It may look like the warlords are winning. It may look like those who are out to defeat the church, defeat the world, defeat peace in the world, take away everything from everyone. It may look like those people are winning. But the kingdom of heaven, the local church, in the life of of your family and your own heart is the hope of the world. A billion people claim to be Christians. I know the Pew study just said that there that we that we had a seven percent drop in those who declare themselves Christian this last year. That's something we should ought to worry about. It's something we should do something about. You know how it gets done? It doesn't get done by some grand scheme in some office somewhere in Washington, D.C. It doesn't get done by some, some great idea that comes down from above. You know where the really good ideas of the church come from? They come from the local church. A couple of years ago, somebody in this church said, Hey, you know what we should do? We should provide Wi-Fi for the neighborhood. We should be a Wi-Fi hotspot. And then somebody else asked, Well, what if they don't want it? And then a third person said, Well, maybe we should ask. Lo and behold. And we did. And we started asking people, what would you do? What would you like the church to do? What would, what would you want from a local church? And we began to ask. And, and people started asking us about what we'd learned from our survey. And before we knew it, we had people in the community saying, hey, can we help reach the people in your neighborhood? We already have programs for young children and young families. We already have programs to help people whose, whose kids are having a difficult time transitioning from junior high to high school. We already have programs to to benefit the kids in the community. Can we come into your building on your corner and do these things for the community on your behalf? We said, okay. If you come down here on a Wednesday night, maybe it's a Tuesday. I'm here so much I can't keep track of the days. You'll find that Kids First meets over there in that room and it's full. And you'll find that the, the, the children's project, which is the one who d- helps kids tr- transition from junior high to high school, meets in here. And sometimes in three or four rooms over here, we have to go find a room for us to meet in in our building. Amen. We've been having meetings with the Police Activities League. They're so excited to, to, be have, to have a place to land. Most Police Activities Leagues struggle because they have no building. Ours has a building. Ours building. But, by the way, you gave your building to the Police Activities League. Hope you like that. August 13th, they're going to have a a kickoff meeting with the kids in the neighborhood. They're spreading it all around the community. They're saying, come to the Grace Point Church. We're going to have a kickoff outside. We're going to have hot dogs. We're going to have have, uh, popcorn. We're going to have games. Come Come and meet a policeman. Come and meet a fireman. Come and hang out at the Grace Point Church. The local church is the hope of the world. And it's the hope of that family who's struggling, who's embattled with their kid. They don't know what to do. And they come in, they sit down in the kid's first classroom, and the people give them a clue. 
The kids who were trying to figure out how this transition to high school is going to go. And, and when the kid was in eighth grade and, or in seventh grade and they said, oh, we're going to Johnny's house for a party. They had a cake and they had ice cream and they had hats. And now they're in ninth grade and the kid gets invited to a party. And the mom goes, what's going on at the party? And the kid comes home stoned or drunk or gets in a car wreck. And the parents are saying, what in the world happened to my little boy and his hat? And they come. And the people who are here help them sort it out and get some tools to take care of their children. The local church is the hope of the world. It's not government. It's not politics. It's not tax money. It's a person in the church ministering to another person. It's caring about touching the life of somebody who has a need. That's all it is. It's using your skills, your time, your energy, your effort to bless somebody else. That's how the local church becomes the hope of the world. Nothing gets done in the church that isn't local. So who's going to win? This game is rigged. We know. God wins. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's a little seed. You throw it in the corner of your garden. It's an insignificant little seed. It's so small you wouldn't even notice it. And it begins to sprout. And before you know it, it's knee high. Then it's shoulder high. And then it's above your head. And the, par- the parting of the clouds or the parting of the sky happens and this little cloud, the size of a man's hand appears and it's wider and brighter and bigger and stronger and it comes closer and closer to the earth and people start popping out of the earth in resurrection. People start lifting off of the earth to meet the Lord. Jesus comes and sin is over and warlords and power mongers and political authorities are gone. And what's left? The local church. The people of God who've been leavened amidst the bread. Who's been little mustard seeds in the corner of the garden growing into places of rest and shade and peace. Who've been loving Christ and loving people on his behalf. That's who's left. And that's who wins. Look, Peter, I know there are only 12 of you. But big things are going to happen. One day, Peter, there'll be a billion. I know you can't even imagine that, but like the sands of the sea, buddy. Just go. Talk to the next person I put in front of you. Then talk to the one after that. And then talk to the one after that. And talk to the one after that. And talk to the one after that. And keep talking to them. Till Jesus comes. There was an old man. He was a pastor. He'd been a pastor all his life, an evangelist, really. He was in his sickbed. He was dying. His son, who was also a pastor, was sitting by his bed reading scripture to him. And as 
This process is going on. Father and son. Son knows his, his father's life is ebbing away. And as they share these last moments, the father begins to speak. He hasn't said much in a while. He's been in a pretty dire space. And it's hard to understand what he's saying. And his son leans in and he says, what are you saying, Dad? And he's mumbling some words. His son leans in a little closer. He gets down right next to him to hear, to understand what this, this faint voice powered by almost no breath left. And finally he begins to understand. His father's repeating a phrase over and over and over. And he begins to put the pieces of the phrase together. And the father says, I need to win one more for Jesus. And the phrase starts to shorten as he repeats it. And it becomes the mantra of the son. As the father states his last words, win one more for Jesus. Win one more for Jesus. The glory of the church's opportunity is that we get to introduce people to the solution that is all solutions. The glory of the church's opportunity is we introduce people to Jesus. And he takes it from there. It is still our calling. No matter what some political or religious or otherwise movement is doing in the rest of the world. No matter what the politicians of California say we can and cannot do, it is still our calling to win the world to Jesus. To introduce the lost to the answer. To introduce the broken to healing to point another person to Jesus. Today, 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 today. That's how that little plant that got thrown into the corner grew to be knee high and then waist high and then shoulder high and then above your head and today has a billion adherents, appearance around the world. Let's pray. Father, when we watch the evening news, when we see television programs, it can be a little discouraging. Thank you for the reminder 
that a little leaven lifts a lot of bread. That a little seed grows and grows. Becomes a resting place for the world. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you in a manner that might bring hope to the world. Help us to be people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us today.